Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available in iTunes and at thejazzsession.com, where you'll also find Amazon links to purchase the music you hear on the show, and a donate button. If you feel like the Jazz Session has given something to you, you could decide maybe, oh, I don't know, to give a little back. My guest today is composer, saxophonist, band leader, philosopher Steve Coleman. He and his band Five Elements have a new record on Pi Recordings called Harvesting Semblances and Affinities, and it begins with a tune called Attila O2, Dawning Ritual. My guest is Steve Coleman. He and his band Five Elements uh, have a new album on Pi Recordings called Harvesting Semblances and Affinities, and it's my pleasure to welcome Steve to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, no problem. How are you doing? I'm doing great, thank you. I, I really enjoy this album, as I have uh, your previous work, and one of the very first things I wanted to ask you about is, uh, to me, one of the things that struck me right from the right from the start, which is the way you use the human voice, uh, in particular, Jen Shu, on this recording. Will you talk a little bit about how you decided to, to employ vocals in the way that you do? Well, I mean, I've been using vocals for a long time. Sure. Um, since I mean, I started my group around 1980, 1981, and there was vocals right from the beginning, I guess you know, Cassandra Wilson. Absolutely. And I've been using vocals um, off and on since that time. I mean, it largely depends on finding a vocalist, you know, I mean, but that's true of any instrument. I mean, I've used trumpet, that's largely depended on finding a trumpet player. And so, um, you know, when you find a vocalist that can deal with whatever you happen to be working on it at the time because the music changes over time. It's not exactly the same same music and it doesn't require the same have the same technical requirements. But um when I found um you know, a vocalist that could deal with what we're dealing with, then I switched to that. Um I've either used a vocalist or a dancer. I've rarely used both, you know, but um one one or the other. And um I met Jen, I think it was 
2001 or 2002, she came to a workshop of mine. She she knew the drummer that was playing with us at the time, Daphne Prieto, and she decided to come by and and um um attend the workshop. And then she gave me a record of hers. You know the the regular spiel that musicians do with each other when they get introduced. They say, uh, "This is my work." Blah 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 blah. And um, I was in the process of doing a record at the time called, well, which later would be called Lucidarium, which involved a lot of vocalists. And, you know, asked her would she um, want to participate in it along with the other vocalists. I didn't know her that well and didn't really know how well she would do, but I was impressed with, you know, how she did on the record. And then I asked her if she wanted to do other things. Um, she was moving to New York at the time, so that's sort of how that worked out. One of the things I've always appreciated about your use of vocals is that they are integrated so seamlessly just into the band as a whole, rather than rather than needing to be either out in some showcase spot or even have words. Uh, they just really are are kind of organically integrated into the sound. Is that is that some a way you've always approached using vocals? <laughs> well, well, um, we're, we're kind of not into the you know. And now our vocalist. Do you remember that song? Yes. The old Johnny Carson. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, you know, and then you bring somebody up and you feature them, and then you know um, they come out and sing. I don't know how high the moon or body and soul, and then they go back. That's you know, obviously that's really not um, what we do. And I think that um, over the years, I, I mean, of course that that element has always been there. There've always been people who've um, tried to approach vocals more like the instrumentalists have approached the music, and there's been instrumentalists for a long time who've approached the music like vocalists. It goes both ways. Um, but for me, the voice is the primary instrument. I've always um, liked the voice. I always encourage all my musicians to, to be able to sing every th- time. I mean, everything. Um, usually when we do rehearsals, we do a lot of um, clapping and singing as opposed to playing instruments and things like that. So I've always um, been into that. I myself don't have a great voice, so when it comes to hiring somebody um, who's going to um, be represented in public. It has to be somebody who has a, you know, who's been singing a long time, and, who, and that's their main voice. My voice is saxophone. So, um, but but it's not easy to find a vocalist who can do what, what Jen does. It's, in fact, it's very difficult. What I mean by that is uh, who's willing to learn the same things as the rest of us in order to play the music, you know, deal with all of the whatever, the harmonic movement, the melodic movements, the rhythms, um, everything that everybody else, that, that, for example, the trumpet player or anybody else has to deal with. And so that's part of the requirements. And it's, I mean, it's not a big deal, but it's, um, it's a certain technical requirement. But in New York in general, the tech- technical requirements are pretty high. It attracts most of the best musicians from every place. So you have a better chance of finding somebody like that in the city. Although recently I met a, a vocalist from Switzerland that has those kind of skills. But it's it's unusual.
Is that because of the nature of vocalists or because of the nature of the opportunities that they're given? It's because of the tradition. It's not the nature of, I mean, um, when you look at the the European tradition, you know, vocalists have been able to sing all kinds of things and have been trained to do all kinds of stuff. You know, of course, the voice is not the same as a trumpet or a saxophone or a bass. None of these instruments are the same. You can't expect a, p- a piano player to play the same things that a trombone player could play, for example, or, you know, vice versa. You know, none of these instruments are the same, but, and the vocal vocalists have their own set of problems and everything, but the tradition this particular tradition, the tradition, tradition of what do you want to call it, improvisation, spontaneous composers. I don't, I don't use words like jazz. I guess you know that. But um, that that particular tradition um, is set, set up a certain way. And a lot of times, people are just doing things based on tradition. The reason why we don't have a lot of strong violin players that 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 play this music there are some but not as many as trumpet and saxophone players is again because of tradition it's not because of limitations of the instrument violin can do all kinds of things you know but if the, if the tradition is not there on say bassoon or some other instrument then not a lot of people are gravitated toward that less people gravitated means less people who are going to be superb on that, that particular thing you know so if more people do it if they do it in greater numbers then there's really no reason why that instrument shouldn't be able to do um, reach its full potential. So a lot of it's that, and then the other part of it is people don't expect the vocals because of that tradition. They don't expect the vocals to do certain things. Certain vocalists um, go off on you if you write stuff. You know, if you if you compose things a certain way for vocals, they like they you know. I remember back in the 80s, Cassandra used to tell me, oh, this is not singable, or you shouldn't be, you know, in the, in the very beginning when I first met her, you know, that this is not the kind of type of thing you write for vocals and, and blah, 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 you know. And I told her, well, if I was looking for the the type of things that you should write for vocalists, then obviously my music is not going to be that creative <laughs> because I would be looking for what's already been done. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not looking for what's already been done. So, but... That was a that was a thing, but then she managed to you know she managed to do it after doing all the complaining anyway. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, there are uh, two pieces on uh, the new record that reference very specific times: um, the Vernal Equinox piece and another that is uh, titled with its date and then subtitled Middle of Water. And neither of those pieces were recorded at those times. And you I wa- are you are the first person, the first interviewer, and I've done a lot of interviews. Get asked about that. <laughs> well, so I don't, I, you don't get a prize or anything, but I'm just telling you, you're the first person that's noticed that. <laughs> I, so, well, obviously, you've already anticipated my question, but it's much the same. I would imagine it might be somewhat the same as you know, you record the Christmas album in July or whatever. How do you actually? How do you focus your energies around what you're trying to represent by those time periods when you're actually recording them in completely different times of the year? Because, um, oh man. This is a deep, it's kind of a deep question. That's okay. <laughs> um, I'm going I'm to make an analogy. It's like you take a, a photograph of something, and then, and then as a painter, you go back and you use that photograph as a model to paint your painting. Now, obviously, the photograph is of a certain moment. It's not going to change. It's not going to, you know, the, per- the person in the photograph is not going to start to age or anything like that. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think so, unless they're Dorian Gray or something. Um, so, um, you know, the painter's painting something that has the vibration or the feeling or the look or f- whatever you want to call it of that particular time. So there's a way to take a snapshot 
of the energy of a particular time. Let's put it that way. Um, and and um, the composition was technically based off of that. It wasn't. It wasn't that I had to get the musicians. Them don't really have to know anything about it, and it's not like I have to get them and say, "Okay, remember that date? Where were you on the fifth of February? Now let's play." You know, it's, it's not. It's not a thing like that. It's more. It more has to do with the way the composition itself is structured. The composition and and um, um, unknown to you, there are actually two records. This record that you that you're referring to is the first of of two that are sort of prepared, and the second one hasn't is not released yet. But the second one in my opinion, does this even more successfully than the first one. But, you know, I can't really talk about the second one because you haven't heard it. Right. And right. Um, as you know, one of, one of the biggest um, problems for a musician is that what you do interviews about and what you talk about and everything is usually like about nine months or a year or whatever behind where you are at any given point. It can be even longer if, if, if things are, you know, released a lot later, which they typically are. So um, a lot of times we're usually thinking about other things by the time we talk about, of course, you get used to this, you know, if you've been out here for a while and you, and you can deal with it. But um, these, particular, these particular compositions, they were referencing that moment. Um, many compositions represent, represent a certain moment, but um, a lot of times musicians don't put down dates or anything like that. They may not say anything about it other than something very general. There's a few things that come out of your answer that I want to ask you about. Uh, one is going back to the uh, the time between the, the taking of the snapshot, however however mentally or physically or spiritually that happens, and the moment of composition. If you can remember, in this case, was, were there extended periods of time between the moments depicted in the pieces and when you actually sat down and wrote them? No. 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 In fact, they were probably... The bulk of the material was, was sketched out because I usually do like a... a fairly fast sketch um, at that time um, because um, I was thinking about it at that time but when we perform it there may be a big gaps in fact we may perform that piece two years from now you know um, and so um, like I said the musicians in the band they're not necessarily dwelling on 
um, it's, it's not their job really, but they're not necessarily dwelling on their overall plan. I sort of compare it to building a house. Um, the architect has a plan, an overall plan, and there may be all kind of symbolism and all kinds of things in that plan. If, if, if for example, it's a cathedral or whatever, but the workers who build the cathedral or the people who, the foremen who may be in charge of the workers or however you want to phrase it, not to belittle them at all because they're totally necessary, but they may have may not be aware at all of of certainly not of the symbolism or even about of the to, of the total technical part of the plan. You know, their job is you know one person's expert on this, another person's expert on that, you know, so that's how we are as musicians. When I'm in the band, my job is, well, besides being a leader and all of these other things, I have the job of being a saxophone player in addition to all of that. So I have to take care of all the technical things that are required for the saxophone. When I have to find the reed or do all the little technical things I do, the trumpet player, Jonathan, has nothing to do with that. He has to take care of his things. But part of being a professional is when we're ready to hit all of this thing should be taken care of, you know. You shouldn't be complaining about missing, you know, valve oil or this or that. All of this thing should be taken care of. Jen should be warmed up and her voice should be, you know, whatever is required for her should be taken care of. You know, she shouldn't come on and say, well, you know, I got a cold today or whatever. You know, that's her job is to take care of all that. Piano player's job is to take care of whatever he has to take care of. And and, and, and that's what we do. So on, on a certain level, it's like a basketball team where you have the point guard, the center, and everybody and they have an overall job to do in terms of working together, but they have individual jobs, and their individual jobs are so demanding that many times the musicians don't have time, although sometimes it happens. They don't have time to inquire about the technical or symbolic or spiritual, whatever else things you have happened. But my experience has been that some people in the band do want to know about that, and some people don't. Some people could care less and never ask, ever. <laughs> and then on others, some, like, like Jen, for example, um, she has her own band, she has her own music, so she's very curious about those things. Well, how did you put this together? And, and um, you know, how did this work? And, and what did you have to study to get this part together and everything? Because there's a lot of non-musical things that go into it because music is just a reflection of who we are, of course. So whatever else you're interested in, like I have a fascination with time. So that's my music's part of that, for example. But what what to me is interesting about that, though, or uh, specific to you in a way that it might not be specific to other musicians, is that your, and if I'm wrong, obviously correct me, but to my way of thinking, your music is much more uh, intrinsically connected to philosophical and spiritual and numerological and astrological uh, underpinnings than, you know, for example, if someone doesn't know how Duke Ellington came up with a tune. Well, it was probably not actually because, you know, Duke had researched deeply into some particular ancient culture and wrote it. I don't think that was how he operated. But in your case, since your music is so grounded in that, it strikes me that someone who's totally unaware of those groundings is in a very different place in relation to the compositions than you are. But you're saying that that works out anyway? There's a couple of ways I can come at that. Sorry, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Um... The first is you mentioned Duke. In in Duke's era, those guys very rarely talked about um, anything like this, like what we're talking about now. They would they would either deflect it or they just wouldn't talk about it. Now it's not true that certain people weren't into this. I mean, I don't know if you noticed, but in Duke's case, he was a he was a Prince Hall Mason, and he he was very much into some mystical things. 
Um, he was a very spiritual person. Um, I mean, you could tell this just by his sacred concerts or whatever. But he used slightly, I don't know what to call these methods for when he, when he, when he did his sacred concerts, but for lack of a better word, I would say something like Kabbalistic or Hermetic methods, you know. I mean, when he, when he, uh, but the, but the, then again, the Masons has that in it anyway. You know, so I mean that's that's part of it because Duke comes from a time when it's very hard for a black man or woman to get a, a decent education, and a lot of the people at that time, including Duke and Count Basie and a lot of other figures, were Masons because that was the one way that they could get um, some kind of education. But there's a, inside the Masonic tradition, there's a whole mystical, esoteric part of that too. So Duke was familiar and was part of that. He's very well read also. That's one, one thing. Of course, there are guys like, you know, Coltrane, Moore, Richard Avon, Sunrise, it goes on and on. But you're right in one thing. It's not the majority. It's, in fact, I would say it's, the, it's, it's a minority. But it's not a smaller, a smaller minority as you might think, either in this music or in European music or in any other music, for example, all over the planet. It's, it's not. It's a, it's a minority, but when you add them all up together, it's a lot of people, let's put it that way. So I would not say that I'm unique in that aspect because I got it from somewhere. I mean, I'm, and what, I'm, what I mean is that I've seen other people and I know other people who have that approach. So I'm, I'm, I'm not the only one. That being said, if you, I don't know, lined up 50 saxophone players, might be five you know, <laughs> who thought who thought that way or, or something like that. So it's definitely, and um, I don't know that for sure, I'm just guessing, but it's definitely a minority, but I make it my business to study that minority, so it's a lot of people. I know that for a fact. Sure. Yeah, and uh, Duke may have been a terrible example on my part. That was just me throwing out a name uh, more to attempt to make a contrast. But the I guess the, the kernel of my question was that, uh, taking anyone else out, taking any other comparison out, and just speaking about you, for someone whose music is as grounded in those things, um, mm-hmm. it, it I just I guess I found it surprising when you said that it wasn't that it didn't really matter whether the musicians either were incredibly inquisitive about those backgrounds or not that they well, all could I work did, together. I didn't say musicians. That, that didn't matter, but first of all, I can't force everybody to to do it. Sure. Um, I have seen bands where guys try to do that. One guy chants, and he tries to force everybody else to chant, or something like that. That's not that's not my approach. Um, primarily, I'm looking for a musician that can do the musical job. That's the that's the first thing. There's okay, occasionally we audition people for groups, and although usually I find people because of recommendations, or I just run into them or whatever. But occasionally we do an audition. Part of the audition is not that they have to know some kind of esoteric bit of information. That's 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 not part of it because if they know that and can't play the music, it won't make a bit of difference. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what they know, nobody will ever hear it. You know? <laughs> so I mean, the, the first thing is their musicianship and whether they can deal do it. Um, the next thing, of course, is can they do it? You know, I mean, um, it's, it's it's not a a band that's paying the same thing as as Michael Jackson or Sting. actually I heard Michael Jackson was pretty cheap, but Sting or whoever, you know. Um, it's not a band that's play- paying as much as those people or working as much or, or, or whatever. So a lot of times it comes down to economics. You know, people say, oh, man, I'm really interested in music. I want to do it. And then, you know, something, they find out how much it pays or what it is. And they say, well, this is not what I thought it is. And they mean economically. It's not what they thought, thought it is. So there's, there's many, many reasons why things can't come together. But assuming all those things come together, the last thing, it, the, the first thing is general vibe. You know, is the, is the general vibe of the music there, 
and, um, you know, depending on whatever you're looking for at the time. And the last thing is probably these things that we're talking about right here. But what typically happens is that some people, usually the people who compose, that's usually the way it goes. Those who compose, like the trumpet player, Jonathan, or now I have different people in the band who you don't know about this guy, Miles Okazaki's playing with me. There's a Cuban piano player um, named David Morales, you know, just different people. Yeah, Miles has been on this show, actually. Oh, okay. All right. I didn't know that. Um, but he's, I mean, he's a guy that's very curious about certain kinds of things that, that line up with, with just where he's at, you know. And so those things he asked me about, you know. Um, Jonathan, who I met Jonathan when he was, I don't know, he started playing, playing with me when he was like 17. Now he's 27, 28. Um, when I first met him, he couldn't hear any. I mean, whenever I started talking about any of this kind of stuff, he, you know, just his eyes just glazed over. You know, that was it. That was it. In the last couple of years, he's been asking me. You know, so, you know, sometimes it's just when people are ready. I mean, I know when I was 17, I certainly wasn't into it, you know, like I like I am now, you know. So you can't you can't push people um, personally. Um, I would, it would be fine if everybody was interested, but that's just not the way it goes. And it's funny that you ask this because I read an interview with Anthony Braxton where they were talking about exactly the same thing as what we're talking about right now. Exactly the same thing. You know, how much should the musicians in your band know and everything. And I've had debates with um, Vijay Iyer and, 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 and different people about this. And Vijay thought that, at least at the time, that everybody should know everything. And I said, well, that's not practical. And you got to deal with what's practical. And what's, what's practical is that, you know, there's going to be some people who could care less, you know. And if they can play the music, you know, it's, it's better to, to, to have them do that than to have somebody in there who knows but who can't play the music. You know, so that's, that's, that's the way I look at it. And I've looked through history and everything. I, talked to, I sat down and talked to McCoy Turner about Coltrane's music once in a Japanese restaurant. And I asked him, did you know what Train was doing? He said, nope. And he worked out just fine as far as I can see. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> But, you know, he said he, he said he knew Train was into some, you know, different things, numbers and stuff like that. He was seeing reading things sometimes, but, you know, he didn't know what that was. Um, Train was kind of a quiet cat. He kept to himself a lot, and McCoy said he just responded intuitively to the music and, and gave his response, and he did a great job, an uh, uh, excellent job, as, as everybody knows. And, um, you know, he didn't, he didn't know, and, and I, I look at it like, well, you know, these are these are my examples. They're great examples, and it's obviously not necessary if somebody really has the music together. See, because I don't want to make this too long, but this what's really important is that people have great intuitions. That's really important with music. And a lot of times, because all of this stuff, we can't forget where everything is coming from. Everything is coming from humans. What I mean by that is this. this there's no gorillas doing chord progressions or, you know, um, elephants doing, doing um, these rhythms and things like that. It's all coming from humans. So the source of everything is coming from the same place. I really don't believe in this intuitive, logical, you know, mind. I believe it's all one thing. That's, that's my personal belief. And so it all comes from the same source. So if somebody comes down one path, another person comes down another path, they may not even have a, a intellectual, um, precise knowledge of what's happening. But there's a lot of stuff happening inside of us that we don't know about with our, with our conscious mind, let's put it that way. I mean, we all know this, right? The blood, bloodstream works, antibodies attack germs, and all this kind of stuff happens without you knowing it. You may be 
uh, forgive my friends, you may be sitting on the toilet when it happens, you know, but <laughs> but all these things, there there is a kind of, um, I don't know how to describe it, a kind of intelligence that's inside you that doesn't have to do with conscious knowing. And so I, I trust that. And when I hear somebody making the right responses, I just let that go. I don't want to interfere with that because something's happening that's right. I don't know how they're doing it all the time, but it's like McCoy said, you know, you can if you can do it, you can do it. Alright, so let me follow up on the it's all coming from humans question and talk and ask you a question about something else that you're well known, at least I know you for doing, which is being one of the pioneers in figuring out how to integrate improvisation with uh, computer music and software-based music, uh, which would uh, and he- here again, I guess I just ask how the uh, how the human element factors into the things that the computer creates. How does how does that function in this in the okay. reality you've described? Uh, it functions in well. The computer is just a tool. It it it's a it's a, it's, um, it's a tool. I don't look at it. I look at all tools pretty much the same. Of course, different tools have different purposes. But on a certain level, my saxophone and the hammer are the same in that they're both tools. They'll both just sit there and do nothing until <laughs> until a person comes along and uses it for whatever it can be used for. Um, I realized this a long time ago. Um, I, I used to follow Sonny Stitt around, and I went to um, his hotel room. I thought he lived in Chicago. He was there so much. It was a motel, actually. I went to his motel room early in the, in the morning and knocked on his door, waking him up out of his stupor. And um, he was waking up and didn't brush his teeth or anything. And he said, he said, um, give me a horn, boy. And I, w- I was like, oh, boy. <laughs> you know, this guy, you know, <laughs> just woke up, is breakfast kicking, he's, you know, drinking vodka and stuff, you know, and he wants to play my horn, but he was Sonny Stitt, and I was, you know, Joe Nobody, you know, some student, and so I, I had to do it. Now, my horn at the time was what we call a, well, it was a stock horn with a stock mouthpiece, meaning it was a student horn, and it just had um, any old cheap student mouthpiece, you know, it was hardly a professional setup, and Stitt took that horn, and I'm sure it felt terrible to him. But the way he sounded 
was like Sonny Stitt. He sounded really, really great. I could hear everything. He was just playing by himself, but I can hear the song. I can hear the chord progressions. I can hear the, the rhythm. I can hear the band even. You know, even though he was playing by himself, I can hear the whole, he was so solid on that. And he gave it back to me, and he didn't say anything because he, you know, the horn was obviously bad. But I looked at the horn when it got back in my hands, and, I, and at that moment, that's when I first learned, okay, not the horn. <laughs> you know, because when it gets back in my hands, it becomes, you know, what it, what it was before I gave it to him, you know. And um, at that time, I was sad, sad, sad. So, so the horn was sad, you know. And um, the other time I've seen this is that, speaking to McCoy Turner again, I saw him give a workshop out in um, at the Stanford Jazz Workshop out in California, Stanford University. He came in his workshop, and there was a piano there that a lot of the students had been playing and everything. And he touched this piano. And from the time he touched it, it transformed into something totally different. When he left, it, it went back to, you know, whatever it was before. You know, and it wasn't even that great a piano. But those kind of instances, and of course, you've heard plenty of stories of Charlie Parker playing all kind of messed up horns and everything. Right. Those kind of instances let me know that it's not in the instrument. You know, and some people get hung up on this. What kind of reed do you use? What kind of horn? All this kind of stuff. Well, you use what makes you comfortable. But that that stuff has little, very little to do with what's inside you as as um, a musician. Of course, the tool that you play is is the one that you learn how to um, manipulate. A computer is the same kind of thing. It was um, George Lewis who I consider the pioneer in 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 this particular area. Um, he was the one that showed me and every um, a lot about the computer and everything, and he was the first one. He he was talking to his computer. He was treating it like it was a well, for lack of a better word, he was treated like it was a brother. <laughs> I mean, when he when he was dealing with this, I mean, he told he showed me and Marvin Smithy Smith. Uh, I don't know around eighty two or eighty three. We went to um, his studio in Amsterdam at the time. He was in Amsterdam, and we couldn't believe some of the things. That's what got me interested. He, we couldn't believe some of the things that he had this computer doing. And it was doing it from a very, I don't know what the, the right word to say, Afrocentric perspective or something like this. It was very loose. He had a whole different relationship to it than what I thought of as computers at the time, which is a kind of stiff scientific kind of thing. He had a whole different relationship to it. Now, of course, he had to deal with the, the curiosities of programming language and all that kind of stuff. But it was the way he dealt with it that impressed me. And, and then I said, okay, I want, to, I want to take that particular approach to this. And um, again, it wasn't the computer. It wasn't the computer language or anything like that. It was George and, and, and his approach. And so in, in that sense, and I just got through talking to somebody about this because they wanted to deal with the computer. And I've talked a little bit about, with Steve Lehman about this because he contacted me about my computer program. He had heard some things that um, somebody played up some tapes or something like this. And he was really interested at what my approach was. And I tell all of them the same thing I'm telling you. I said, well, you know, George is a cat. And I, I sort of really just adopted his mindset towards how he, he did it. And a lot of times it's the mindset and the spirit you bring to something that, that really determines what you're going to get out of it. Other than that, these things are just tools. Well, I'd like to spend about the next seven or eight or nine weeks talking to you, uh, <laughs> but, but I've taken the time I told you I was going to take. So, uh, uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm fine if you want to go forward, but I mean, it's up to you, but I'm, I'm fine. I always allow a little bit more time because... Well, let me ask you, I'll, I'll, okay, then I'll ask you uh, at least one more question here. Um, 
in in reading about you over the years, and then in particular in reading your liner notes uh, for this album, uh, there are two people you mentioned, one of whom I'd, I'd heard you mention many times in the past is Thomas Goodwin, and then one uh, who is an, a new name to me, and I don't even know if I can pronounce it correctly, Ramon, maybe Lul. Is it Lul or Lull? Oh, Ramon Lull. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Can you can you talk about who those those two men are and and how they come to bear on this new record? Well, they lived at very different times. I mean, I talk about a lot of people, five, three men all the time, different people. But um, those two are what I consider philosophers. Um, Thomas Goodwin is born in 1940, so he's living now. Well, doesn't have to be living now, but he happens to be living now. And um, Ramon Lull lived in 12 something. 13 something, you know, um, AD. <laughs> so <laughs> this was quite, quite some time ago. Um, there's only so, um, there's a lot actually known about his personal life because he wrote a biography and he did a lot of writing and, and almost all of his work survived. So that's unusual for somebody from that time period. But he did a lot of writing and everything. Um, both are mystics, whatever that means to you. I mean, it can mean a lot of different things, but they're concerned with, um, Things that are unseen. Let's put it that way. Ah, um, oh man, I don't know where to start. It's pretty big. Um, Tom knows a, a lot about ancient Egypt and um, a lot about ancient ways of of um, studying ancient ways of thinking and things like this, and then how that pertains to where we are today and all of that. And he's the probably the first person that taught me how to research original texts. What I mean by that is um, if you want to know what Herodotus said, don't buy a book that somebody wrote, which is, you know, sourced from a book that somebody else wrote, which is sourced from a book that somebody else wrote, which is sourced on Herodotus. <laughs> you know, he said, go directly to the source and start there, you know, and, and, and inform your own opinion, and then maybe you can look at the opinion of so-called experts or, or whatever, you know, um, which I've always used in music. I mean, you know, my, my, my philosophy was always, well, you know, don't start with a guy who's influenced by Coltrane. Go directly to Coltrane. You know, it's, it's okay if you want to check out other people, but go, get as close to the source of ideas as you can. I always followed that. So I, I was attracted to that way of thinking. So he got me into studying ancient texts. I complained in the beginning because I was like, well, you know, I don't read ancient Chinese, ancient Greek, ancient Egyptian, ancient. You know, he said, well, okay, next best thing is translations, of, you know. Of those of those ancient things, um, and look at several translations to try to you know um, see if there's some differences or whatever you know. But um, he, what he was trying to say was, don't look at things that are people talking about or giving opinions. He said because whenever somebody does that, that always another point of view or another perspective creeps in, which is true. And the same thing is true with music. You can look at five guys who are influenced by Charlie Parker, and they'll sound five different ways, and they'll all be directly influenced by him because who they are, their perspective, is always a part of the picture. And, it, you know, you can't, you can't stop that, really. And so he, you know, he taught me that, and then I took that. He's not a musician, but he taught me that, and then I used that and applied it to music and started studying um, the earlier music and ancient music and everything, and that's really, really, really helped me. And, um, in fact, that's how I ran into Ramon Lowe's work, was um, using that same thing. I had seen his name referenced, and people were talking about him, and I decided to check as much as I could the ancient, you know, his actual writings. And so um, Tom's work has, you know, just the general um, direction of it 
has been influencing me for a while. I mean, I would say at least since '94. Um, so that's that's been an ongoing thing. Law has too, but this this particular CD, I looked at some specific things that Law was dealing with. Um, if you, I mean, briefly, if you want to know what they were, they have to do with the he uh, deals with these elements: earth, air, fire, and water, and there's certain ways that the elements transmute to, into each other, and all this kind of stuff. Or you could say progress to each other. And um, I was modeling some of the musical stuff I was doing off of that. That's the best way of putting it. And um, those tunes with the dates on them, they particularly have that in in, in them. You know, now probably. Jen was the only one that really asked me a lot about that. Um, well, Jonathan did too, you know, um, but but definitely um, in the case of the drummer and the bass player and people like that, you know, usually the rhythm section cats, they're not, you know, they're usually playing with a million other groups and they have enough on their minds, so they don't, they, don't get in, they don't get into it as much as horn players and singers might because they're usually focusing more on specific things. Okay, so then this will be my final question, or if I continue to ask questions, I'll never stop. So my final, no, que- no problem. My final question will be: um, You talked about uh, in Lowell's work the, and this is to some degree represented in the liner notes and some things you've written. Uh, this this progression of the elements, and then you said that that you know informs uh, some of the compositions. And does that mean? Like in an abstract way, like you were thinking about those things and then you wrote these pieces because they made you feel that way? Or does that mean you've somehow represented them mathematically or uh, in terms of the chord progressions? Or what does that mean that those, the progression of the elements has influenced these compositions? If there's Okay. Some- well, in, in general, I do both. Just just to let you know. In, in general, I do both. I do the inspiration thing or the intuitive thing, all, all of that, you know, um, like, you know, um, I'm in love with my girlfriend, so I wrote this song for her, and here it is, and it feels like her, or something like that. You know, and I, all musicians do that pretty much, you know. Um, so that's included. It's always included. But in my, in my case, I, I specifically tried to deliberately study different ways of coming closer to that, um, 
It's a hard word to say. Technically, physically, actually, I mean, it's 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 hard because um, it's it's all done with symbolism. But then again, language is symbolism, and um, I mean, the same sound can mean a lot of different things in different languages. But it's, but what's happening is you have an you have an agreed upon um, structure and meaning and everything that a group of people have agreed upon, and that becomes something. It's not that simple, but. You know, a lot of it's through usage, but a lot of it's through kind of um, people codifying certain things and bringing together conferences and having this kind of thing. Well, when you're doing it yourself, you have to do that. You have to do just that. You have to decide, okay, what's going to represent this? Um, let's take the element of, of water. You know, what is, first of all, what, is it, what does that even mean, the element of water? I mean, everybody knows what water, the physical water is, you know, but... What is the element of water? So, I mean, that's one thing. You have to study all that and see what that symbolism really means when they say earth, fire, air, water. What does that really mean? It's a long, long conversation. But that's the, that's the first thing. So there's a lot of technical preparation involved in that. Um, a lot of esoteric stuff you have to read on. You know, read up what other people are saying. Think about what it means for you and everything. Then the next stage is how are you going to represent that with sound? Now, this is a big deal because you have to study sound not just from the perspective of you know, I'm going to play this chord or I'm going to play this scale or play this rhythm or whatever, but from the, from the standpoint of what it symbolizes, what it means. And of course, you know, ultimately it's what it means to me, since that's, that's what I'm doing. But in the process of finding out what it means to me, I'm going to check out what it has meant to different people in different times to get examples of that. Um, when I went to Africa for the first time, the main reason I went there was because I went, this was, there was this particular tribe that still had the talking drum thing alive. You know, a guy got up every morning and he played the drums, not singing or anything. He just played the drums and he beat out the lineage of the kings and the tribe and different stories about the exploits and everything. And I just couldn't believe this when I heard about it. I read about it and I said, I have to see it. I have to see it for myself. I have to talk to the elders of the tribe. I want to see how is this possible. What is it, some kind of Morris Cole thing, or how does it work? I've been hearing about talking drums thing ever since Tarzan movies when I was little. But, but, um, but I've never, you know, as a musician, I wanted to know how that was possible. Things like that, studies like that, and, and my travels around to uh, Indonesia and India and, you know, Cuba, Brazil, all these different places, um, but especially that first trip to Africa, is what let me know that something like this was even possible. It was even possible to take nonverbal sounds and express something in a more direct way than, I don't know, um, a, a, a general feeling, like a general feeling of franticness or a general feeling of smoothness or, you know, a love song or something like that. You know, the typical things you hear on the radio all the time, you know. I wanted to know that there was, you know, what these methods were and everything. So I spent a lot of years, I mean, plenty, like 20, 25 years, studying this kind of thing. And so... The symbolism, everything, it didn't just come overnight. It was as a result of a, a lot of these things. It's much too big to say in one conversation or something like that. But in the end, you develop words, sentences, things like that. I mean, that's the best way I put it, of, of symbols that have a certain kind of meaning to make certain kind of connections for you. Um, not arbitrary connections, but things that really have to do with the way you've always felt about things um, internally. I guess you could say it in a, on a certain level, for all humans, it goes back to intuition or maybe even, um, what's the word that people use, um, instinct or something like this. 
But, you know, those are just words to try to describe something that's either was there with you, it seems like it was always there, you know, or, or something that you seem to know without knowing how you know it. Like I said, there's a lot of different ways of knowing things. But you combine that with study. You combine that with what other people have done, the work that other people have done and everything. And then you find ways that, you know, it makes sense, both musically makes sense and esoterically makes sense. But this takes a long. This takes a long time. It's not something. But in the end, it's a it, you making what you feel, what you're sure is a more direct connection. The verification of that is when somebody comes up to you at a concert, not one of you guys, not a music critic that you know gets a million records from record companies or whatever, <laughs> but um, a regular person who just happened to come to the concert, maybe doesn't know the music so well, maybe didn't know the music followed you, but just made their own opinions. And when that person comes up to you and then says exactly what it is that you mean, which has happened to me several times, then you just you just say, wow, this person really picked it up, you know. But, you know, maybe that person is kind of in, it's like a sympathetic vibration thing. Maybe that person is kind of in the same vibration anyway. There's a lot of people that would never get it. I'm sure if Five Elements played a concert and Dick Cheney was sitting in the audience, that, you know, <laughs> I mean, forget it. I mean, it's not, you know, because vibrationally, from the beginning, he's not he's not even close to where we are. So, you know, a lot of it has to do with that. It has to do with somebody being um, close to the area. But just like I can play a note on my saxophone and a string on a piano nearby might start vibrating, I think that this this is not just a physical phenomenon. It's sympathetic vibrations. It happens with people too. People can feel each other when they get together, and they they can feel a good vibe. You can feel a bad vibe. Even animals can feel it. I've seen dogs growl at people. They just don't like them right from the beginning person doesn't have to do anything, you know, just because they don't like the feeling. So I know from just regular things like this, this is true, and what I'm trying to do is enhance that kind of thing through my music. It's not new, though. Coltrane and those guys were trying to do the same thing. They just didn't talk about it. You have to really, really dig as a musician to find examples of, of, of where these guys talked about these things or talk to people they knew, like Wayne Short or whatever. You know, just, I mean, it, that's the only way you're going to find out. It's generally not talked about. My guest is Steve Coleman, and I'd just like to say right here and now that I fully support immersing Dick Cheney in the Steve Coleman personality <laughs> readjustment program because nothing else worked. I mean, it certainly can't hurt. Uh, yeah, I wish I wish him hell. <laughs> he's he's, he's um, having a hard time right now, but, you know. We'll, we'll leave that there. Steve Coleman and Five <laughs> Elements have an album called Harvesting Semblances and Affinities, and uh, hello to all the FBI agents who are now going to be listening to this episode of the show. Uh, <laughs> Steve, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I hope you'll come back because uh, there's so many more things I'd, I'd love to know and uh, love a chance to talk with you about. But I, I thank you for the time and, and uh, wish you well. Okay, thank you.
from Pi Recordings, that's Steve Coleman and Five Elements and the new album Harvesting Semblances and Affinities. I'm Jason Crane. This is the Jazz Session, presented by All About Jazz, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is also available in iTunes and at thejazzsession.com, where you'll also find links to purchase the music you hear on the show and a donate button if you'd like to give a little something back. My thanks to the Respect Sextet. They've got a brand new album on the way, and they'll be playing in uh, mid-August at LPR in New York City. Please visit respectsextet.com for details on that show and on the recording. That's respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Vrabel, who designed the Jazz Sessions logo. Thank you so much for listening, and please go out and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.